Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to the fifth episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines the lives of, in the Tudor era. And today, Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick. I've got the quiz for you. Let's start with that. Quiz. We could tell that this was just as bad as what Jasper was going to be for the quiz because I had to really work at trying to figure out questions about <laughs> him specifically. Okay, so question... I think I gave up in the end. I think only one of mine was actually <laughs> specifically about Jasper. Yeah. <laughs> okay, number one. What famous author is John descended from? Is he descended or his wife? His mother is. Is his mother? Mother, yes, sorry. Yes. Yes, Which is him. His mother is Alice Chaucer. Mm-hmm. And I'm plumping for Geoffrey Chaucer. Correct. <laughs> Mind you, there's not many really of that time, is there? No. Number two. Mm-hmm. Whose daughter did John marry? John married. John married. Oh gosh. Oh, this is a this is basic stuff. Come on, put yourself together. <laughs> um, so, um, was it Warwick? No, the Duke of York. Oh. Number three. When John was 15, what did he and Sir John Lovell get called to? They got called. Was that, that wasn't when he was made Knight of the Garter, surely? No. No, not when you're 15. No. Nope. Oh, I can't remember. Well, isn't that terrible? That was the posse. <gasps> the posse. Yes. Gosh, I was going to say, there's not that much to, to remember. I should have remembered that. He didn't do so very much, did he? No, but we did look into that. So we did look into the origin of Posse because I had thought it was part of a country western thing. But it turns yeah. out Posse started out as a technical term in law in the medieval times. It's part of a Latin term, Posse Comitatus which meant power or authority of the county or country. So it referred to a group of citizens summoned by a sheriff or king to preserve the public peace as allowed for by law. So it started a lot earlier than... Yeah, so so when you get in Westerns, people gathering a posse, they're talking Latin. Yeah, but I wonder if they knew it. No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but I thought that was fascinating. I looked it up and was like, ooh. (laughs) Can I tell you my my fascinating etymological um, snippet? It's, I got this from the wonderful podcast, The History of English. Okay. Um, hortus means garden. Cum horte, ablative, means with, with the garden officially, but with someone in the garden, from which you get cohort, somebody oh. you would meet in the garden, from which you get the word court. A royal court is people you'd meet in the garden. Oh, that's so neat. It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Number four. Oh, yes, I've forgotten about this. Yes, go on. <laughs> what order was John admitted to without mention of any great deeds? I think that might be the Order of the Garter then. Yes, it is. Yeah. Number five. What order or ban of Henry VII's did John disregard? That was the use of 
livery. Yes. Yes, because um, they didn't want him to have private armies, did they? And he ignored that. And we we suppose that maybe he couldn't actually afford any other clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that was it. With everything he kept saying about how poor he was, he just couldn't mm. afford to re-clothe absolutely everybody. <laughs> well done. Well, I don't think I did terribly well. Three, Three? two, three. Mm, okay. Just like me last time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and now on to Edward Plantagenet, the Earl of Warwick. Okay. Well, if you have tears to shed, prepare to shed them now. Uh-oh. Ooh. That doesn't bode well. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I initially wondered if, the, if this would be the shortest episode of the entire season. I mean, what's there to say of a boy who shut up in prison from the age of 10? Oh. Um, apart from just, you know, isn't that tragic? Yeah. However, it turns out there are plots and conspiracy theories and abductions and twists and turns and tragedies and inexplicable loyalties. And there are many more possibilities to this lad's life than I'd, I'd realised. Oh, really? Although, whichever way you look at it, it remains a very sad story. Yeah, but I, so I it, thought it was just going to be, yes, he's in prison. Mm, Ten years later, we'll talk about no, it. There's a lot more to it than that. Good. Anyway, grab your hanky and let's go. Okay. <laughs> Come with me, if you will. To a castle in Ireland. Now, I should imagine it'd be a windswept night, the rain battering down, maybe maybe a bit of lightning, but that might be pushing it a bit. Two figures struggle out of the gloom and hammer on the door of the castle. A man and a very small boy. They're muffled up against the weather. The guards peer out and then, seeing who it is, usher them in quickly. They hurry towards the great hall. There stands the lord of the castle. That is you, Begora, Begora. So I'm setting the scene here. We're in Ireland, you get... Okay. The stranger struggles out of his wet cloak. "'Tis I,' he says. "'I've brought the boy.' He pushes the boy forward. "'Now guard him with your life,' he adds rather melodramatically. The boy collapses with sheer exhaustion. Well, that may or may not have happened, but this did. On the 25th of February, 1475, a baby was born who carried the historically weighty name of Edward Plantagenet. His father was George, Duke of Clarence, whom we've already come across in the previous episodes, you know, having the crown dangled in front of him by Warwick the Kingmaker, only to have it snatched away from him when Warwick decided to throw in his lot with Margaret of Anjou and her awful son, Edward. I, I thought there was a nice quote, actually, about um, George in Thomas Penn's book, The Brothers York. He describes him as the simmering stew of self-entitlement and personal inadequacy that was George, Duke of Clarence. <laughs> I remember <laughs> I think that sort of puts puts him in perspective. Our Edward, well, I'm going to call him Young Edward because there's a lot of Edwards, had two godfathers: his uncle Edward the Fourth and John Strensham, abbots of Dukesbury. Two Dukesbury? godfathers. That's Dukesbury. interesting. Hmm. Most of the reading that I've done so far has been one godfather but two godmothers because of the chance of women dying in yeah. childbirth. This is the first I've heard of two godfathers. I don't I don't know about godmothers in his case, but. Certainly, both godfathers are irrelevant. So maybe the mother wasn't godmother wasn't quite as relevant. So they didn't mention her. But okay. Anyway, sadly, and I will be using that word a fair amount in this episode, young Edward's mum, Isabel Neville, daughter of the Kingmaker, died in December fourteen seventy six when Edward was just two. Oh. At this point, his father George seems to have gone completely off the rails. He announced that one of Isabel's servants, Anchorette Twinner. 
I'm going to call it Twiniho. There's a lot of Ys in it, but I thought I was going with Twiniho. Had poisoned her, and a few days later he claimed that another servant, John Thursby, had poisoned his infant son, Richard. However, George did nothing about this for three months, which seems curious, but depending on which angle from which you view this story, there may be a rational explanation which we'll explore later. Oh, did these poor people end up yeah. in trouble? They ended up in trouble. It was on Saturday, 12th of April, 1477, that a group of armed men commissioned by George broke into Anchorette Twinahoe's house near Froome in Somerset and carried her off to Warwick, that's the place, not the boy, mm-hmm. where she and Thursby were put on trial for the murder of Isabel Neville and oh. the baby. The jury were intimidated by George's men into finding a guilty plea and she was condemned to death. Oh my goodness! Some, some members of the jury were so horrified at what they had been forced to do that they came to Anchorette before her execution and begged her forgiveness. And she was in her 60s at this point. She's an old woman by the standards of the day. Oh but um, yeah, Edward IV gave Anchorette's grandson a full retrospective pardon for his old grandma. But, you know, too little too late. Why didn't he step in and get a pardon before she died? I think it was quite a, a rush. He grabbed Anchorette, dragged her up to Warwick... Bish bash bosh, trial. The next day. Yeah. Mm. I think it was quite a get this over and done with. It was this episode and a later one when George burst into the council chamber and berated his brother, who led to Edward attainting George and imprisoning him. And he led the prosecution himself, you know, keeping it in the family. George then mysteriously and famously drowned in a vat of Malmsey. He was only 28. <laughs> I think it's easy to forget just how young he was because he, he, he packed a lot into a short time, didn't he? Yeah, some of his actions made me start thinking, we're not going to be covering George. No. But it made me think that maybe he got some of that mental instability that was coming through the ruling houses. Maybe so, but his actions in this case, may, well, yeah, horrific, but may not be quite as bizarre mm-hmm. as they seem from seeing it from this angle. But we will we will see that later, I think. The attainder placed on George also covered his descendants, and since the attainder specifically stated that the honour, estate, dignity and name of Duke was forfeit for him and his heirs forever, young Edward was deprived of his title of Duke of Clarence. He continued to be Earl of Warwick, though, because that came down to him through his mother's side. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, she's the daughter of Kingmaker. Mm-hmm. Or the Killmaker, as I called him last time. <laughs> <laughs> Very aptly. After his parents' death, young Edward became a royal ward and was taken in at this time by Thomas Grey, Marcus of Dorset, the eldest son of Elizabeth Woodville, in exchange for £2,000, which, you might notice, is twice as much as Lord Herbert paid for Henry Tudor. Yes. Dorset was also given the marital rights of the boy, and we've come across this before, haven't we, with Edmund and Jasper Tudor being given the marital rights over Margaret Beaufort. Yes, I did find a few places where that actually got uh, negotiated separately. So you'd pay one fee yeah. for the wardship and one fee for the marriage rights. Oh, no. Well, it seemed unlikely that he would have married young Edward off without consulting his uncle Edward anyway, I'd have thought. Yeah. Um, Dorset held the governorship of the Tower of London, so it is possible that young Edward may have spent part of his time as a young boy in the place that was later to become his prison. But Well, we don't know that for certain, but... No, and it is important to note at this time that it was a royal residence as well oh, yes. as a dungeon. So oh, it, yes, it encapsulated was... everything at that time. Now we just have it as it was a dungeon, but that's not mm. the case at this time. Yeah, it's just unfortunate for him that he might have spent... His entire life in one building. <laughs> yes. 
Um, not quite, though. When the Marcus of Dorset fled over the Channel to join Henry Tudor's exiles, you know, those are the men that were hiding behind the sofa when Henry got back from his abortive invasion of England, young Edward was left without a guardian. So when Richard III came to the throne, he arranged for young Edward to live in or to be confined in, depending on your point of view, the household of Richard's wife, Anne Neville, who was young Edward's maternal aunt, another daughter of Warwick the Kingmaker. The brothers, Richard and George, married the sisters, Isabella and Anne. Yes, and yet another papal dispensation. There is no evidence that young Edward was treated badly by Richard III, but it's obvious that Richard wanted to keep him where he could see him. When Richard declared the princes in the tower illegitimate, there was no discussion as to whether young Edward should succeed, although he really should have been next in line, being the son of Richard's older brother, George. But that attainder would have stopped him? Maybe. It wouldn't necessarily have stopped him because there have been other kings who became king with an attainder. For instance, Edward the Fourth, and oh, also right. yeah, Henry the Sixth the second time round. Yes. So it made it harder, obviously, but um, not impossible. And and Edward was only eight at this point, and you know who was going to tell Richard that he should wait his turn? Right, and it's, I don't know, maybe it's lucky for him that he had that attainder, otherwise he may also have gone the way of his cousins. Well, yes, I was, well, <laughs> this is what I've written. If Richard had arranged for the princes to be murdered, I wouldn't have given much for young Edward's chances if anyone had started pushing his claim at this point. So, yes, precisely. Yes. And Richard never reversed the attainder on young Edward, but then he, he wouldn't, would he? he wouldn't take away the only impediment to young Edward having a better claim to the throne than he had. Right. Young Edward attended Richard's coronation festivities, where he may have obviously met John de la Pole, because we've heard last time that he was there. Yes. But John, being the human chameleon, perhaps said young Edward might not have noticed him blending in with the stonework. <laughs> yep. but young Edward was also part of Richard's royal progression around the north. Again, you know, is Richard exceptionally fond of his young nephew and wants to be around to read him his bedtime story, or does he just want to keep him in view? Or, you know. or maybe we're at the point where he's showing that he can look after one of his nephews without anything happening to him. Damage well, control. Possibly. I mean, Jonathan Lepole Jr. also went on this northern excursion, but interestingly, the princes were not invited on this little jolly. And it's curious that Richard should have felt so safe on the throne that he could take the risk that the princes would not be sprung from the tower while he was away. Unless, he, of course, he knew that they, this would not be possible yeah. for some reason. I can if, just imagine if it was a natural death and him going, oh God, oh God, nobody's going to believe think, this. What do I do? What I do I think, do I think that sounds <laughs> painfully possible, doesn't it? Yes, it does. That's I've just killed the a sort whole of bunch of people. Happens. Nobody's ever going to think that I didn't kill the kids. <laughs> Ah, uh, ah. Uh, I just, I won't say anything. I won't say anything. Yeah, no, no. Just put a, put a mannequin in the window. <laughs> Move it every once in a while. Um, if Richard III had survived Bosworth, it's possible he would have trained young Edward up, into, up in the world of politics. He'd been given a place on the Council of the North, but given his youth, that was only a nominal position. As some have suggested that had Richard survived Bosworth and given that his own son had died, he would have made young Edward his heir and may have already done so. Uh, right. But that's a story for later. And we'll have to bear in mind that young Edward was still under an attainder. But as we've just discussed, that's not necessarily a problem. Mm -hmm. He was also very young. And as has been suggested, uh, Richard might have offered it to John de la Pole Jr. So we just don't know. 
No. Like many things, we just don't know. Ah, oh, to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> yeah, but be quite a long-lived fly to yes. see all these things. <laughs> when Henry Tudor came to the throne following Bosworth, he immediately dispatched Robert Willoughby to Sheriff Hutton in Yorkshire to retrieve young Edward. News brought to the Tower of London, the last place that the princes had been seen alive just a couple of years before. Young Edward was ten, and I think that needs reiterating. He's been sent to the Tower of London, albeit not to the darkest dungeon with shackles or anything, but the Tower of London, nevertheless, and he was ten. Yeah. I wonder if he would have felt any dread, though. I mean, if he was kept in the court uh, apartments, he may not have, it may not have occurred to him to be afraid. I didn't, I couldn't work out in what conditions he was kept. Yeah. Um, it was hard to tell. I mean, I don't know, he wasn't kept in a dungeon. But it was it was difficult to tell just how badly he was kept or just how well. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find any information on it. Um, you, you said in Margaret Beaufort's episode that Margaret was given the wardship of young Edward. I, I didn't come across that. I read that Edward was picked up straight away when Henry VII came to the throne and was taken straight to the tower. Mm-hmm. Um, would Margaret have had wardship over a t- child in the tower? Yes, she possible? did. She did. For, right. I believe it was about the first year or first two years before he was moved to another wardship. And the reason he was moved was because he was about to start his male education and could not do so under a woman. Right, so, okay. I, I believe that one, Nicola I don't think he got a lot of education. said that one. And I did find it elsewhere. So it wasn't a long wardship. She kept a very long wardship of some of the females that she ended up. But mm. the boys, once they got to an age where they should have started their chivalric education, they were moved to a man at that point. I can't see he got a lot of that, though. No, neither could I. No, but no. it's the right age for him to have yes. been moved to a man for a wardship. Mm. Um, I was wondering if his sister, Margaret, Countess of Salisbury, would have been in any position to help her brother. She married Richard Pole in 1487, which, as we heard before, was arranged by Margaret Beaufort. She gets in everywhere, doesn't she? Yes, she does. <laughs> he held a variety of offices in Henry VII's government, the highest being Chamberlain for Arthur, Prince of Wales, Henry's eldest son. When Arthur married Catherine of Aragon, Margaret Pole became one of her ladies-in-waiting, but her entourage was dissolved when Arthur died in 1502. So she was in Henry VII's court until at least three years after her brother's death. You wonder, was there nothing she could have done? But then you think, what? What could she have done? And women had so little say. I I say that after mm. we've just discussed some very strong women in the yes. last few <laughs> podcasts. But all of those women were in some essence a mother and she was a sister. She wasn't mm. a mother of him. So perhaps she didn't have the same pull, or maybe the affection wasn't there. We we don't know. Yeah, she might not have had, well, I was going to say, she might not have had that sort of personality, but we'll find out in the next season when we do her. Mm-hmm. However, if Henry thought shutting young Edward away would be a case of out of sight, out of mind, he was mistaken. The first time young Edward's name was used as part of a rebellion was during the uprising by the Stafford brothers in April 1486. And we'll be doing an episode on the elder Stafford brother. The rumour has spread that young Edward had been freed and handed over to Francis Lovell. And I think we might be doing an episode on him, I can't remember. Yes, we will. We're. Edward was also said to have been seen at the Burgundian court, although the two facts aren't incompatible. Uh, a Burgundian chronicler, Adrian Debut, or Debut, re- reported that he'd been seen in Ireland. 
So to dispel these rumours, Henry VII had young Edward taken from the tower and paraded around London. But I'm not sure what that would have proved. I mean, no one would recognise him one way or the other, would they? Possibly not, unless he had a strong family resemblance. Yeah, but I mean, the people seeing him riding past in the street aren't going to be any the wiser, are they? Possibly not. He was then taken to St Paul's where he celebrated Mass and then shoved back into the tower out of sight again. He'd done his bit. I did some research on the Henry VII Society website, which contained the quote, To prove that Warwick was still living and quashing all rumours of his death, Henry paraded the boy publicly before returning him to the sanctuary of the tower. Warwick suffered no more than that. Which to me seems to belittle the situation. For a start, sanctuary? I mean, sanctuary to me implies somewhere you choose to go for safety. And there was no choice and no safety. And also the boy had been lived in, well, a cell, I don't know, a a, a confined space anyway. A gilded cage is still a cage. Yeah. Well, then he's taken out, shunted around London for everyone to look at, and then shunted back into his gilded cage. I mean, maybe he thought he was being released, and then he was horrified to discover, you know, he was back. But the whole thing to me seems a horrific experience for anybody, never mind a small boy. And mm-hmm. yeah, that quote just seemed to, uh, that riled me a bit. I thought, he's a boy. Yeah. Oh, that's just... Anyway. Unless we're thinking that the reason they call it sanctuary is because if he wasn't there, somebody would have claimed him and would have used him and put his life definitely in danger. Yeah, that's a possibility. But, I mean, sanctuary... Yeah, yeah. It makes it, that implies that Henry the Seventh was doing it all for his own good. It also and gives he was. you. He was doing an... it for Henry's own good, but not for Edward's. Yeah, and it also gives you an impression of comfort. Hmm. And we don't know mm. if he was comfortable. No, no, I didn't. I didn't think that was that was appropriate. However, the rumours refused to lie down, and on the twenty fourth of May, fourteen eighty seven, across the Irish Sea. A young boy was being hailed as Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, and was being crowned King Edward VI. Yes. I don't want to go into too much depth about Lambert Simnel's story, since he will get an episode of his own, where all this will be explained in laborious and convoluted detail. Suffice it to say that he was the son of a joiner or organ maker in Oxford, who was trained by a priest to imitate Bortec etiquette, and was schooled in the family relationships of the royal households. And if you think this sounds a bizarre and unlikely story, I mean, young Edward was alive and kicking and living in the tower. There can't have been two of them. And what would a lowly priest know of court etiquette anyway? And where did he get him from? Hmm, precisely. Well, it it sounds to me like a bizarre and unlikely story as well. And we'll look at some alternative explanations later. Okay. Yeah, there's lots of of, uh, foreshadowing in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe by the time we get to Lambert, nobody will remember this. <laughs> so one ten-year-old boy is cooped up in the tower, and another ten-year-old boy is being crowned at Christchurch Cathedral, Dublin. Now, it's thought that Simnel was initially to be passed off as Richard, the younger of the princes of the tower. But hearing, erroneously, that young Edward had died, Simnel's handlers decided to change tack. Well, this, again, seems quite unlikely to me. I mean, they're saying, he's Richard, he's Richard. Oh, no. Oh, no hang on. What did you say? He's dead. He's dead. Oh, right. No, no, he's Edward. He's Edward. You can't do that, can you? No. <laughs> well, we um, think we can't, but then you start thinking about some of the stuff that happened, and uh, this is politics, but the Trump <laughs> campaign, where he wa- came from nothing, and yet he was still a billionaire, and they managed to oh, make yes. him both things when he wasn't... It just wasn't, and people believed it. So I can well imagine that uneducated people might believe it. 
<laughs> uneducated people from the um, Tudor era, are we saying, or just people in general? Both. <laughs> According to some, the rebellion was going to happen, whatever, and Simnel was just a means to an end. He was created to be a rallying point for the inevitable coup, and he was taken to Ireland because the Irish would be more likely to go for the story. They had no idea what the real Edward Plantagenet looked like. And they also, they were more likely to favour him because was, he was the grandson of Richard, Duke of York, who'd fled to Ireland after the right. uprising against Henry VI and had been lieutenant there. Right. And George, Duke of Clarence, young Edward's father, had been born in Dublin, which, you know, counts for a lot. And so most of the nobility of Ireland were present at the crowning of the small boy. The uprising with Simnel at his figurehead, masquerading as young Edward, grew with the backing of Margaret of Burgundy until they had a large enough army to invade England. More of this side of it in Margaret and John de la Pole Jr.'s episodes. Now, all this is obviously ridiculous, since everybody knew that Edward was in the Tower and had been for over a year at this point. So how on earth did they think they could get away with such a crazy story? I mean, why did respected people like John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, Francis Lovell, Gerald Fitzgerald, the Earl of Kildare, Margaret of Burgundy, Maximilian I, King of the Romans, and possibly even Elizabeth Woodville, the king's own mother-in-law, why did the, all these people believe, or claim to believe, that this young lad called Lambert Simnel was the boy that everybody knew was languishing in the tower? This makes no sense at all. And if they wanted young Edward Plantagenet, why did they latch on to Lam Lambert Simnel? Why didn't they wait until they'd invaded England and then taken the real Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, out of the tower? Anything to get rid of Henry? Well, yeah. <laughs> what were they planning to do with Lambert Simnel once they successfully invaded England and grabbed young Edward Plantagenet? A Simnel would then be a surplus boy. But, yeah, I mean, the more you delve into it, the more ludicrous the whole setup seems. Mm -hmm. And that's why there must be an alternative explanation. Unless they plan to keep Lambert Simnel alive and get rid of the real Earl of Warwick, and then later well, he has no claim. <laughs> that, that's yet another possibility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I told you, I told you it was full of twists and turns, this story. However, Henry VII had to take this seriously. Apart from the young boy angle, this was exactly the way that he'd become king. The army, led by John de la Pole Jr. We can, call, we can stop calling him Jr. when he has his own episode, can't we? <laughs> yes, currently and his a, father is still alive. Yes. And a German mercenary called Martin Schwartz crossed the water and landed on English soil. Uh, well, to postpone a long story until another episode, de la Pole did not get the support he had been expecting. So when he did meet Henry VII at the Battle of Stoke Field, his army mainly consisted of mercenaries and ill-armed and ill-protected Irishmen. You've got to feel sorry for these poor Irishmen. I mean, they, they were they, not only do they not have armour, they hardly had clothes. Oh, jeez. Henry wiped the floor with them. And that was the end of Simnel's bid for the throne of England. So that was a quick tour around the short reign of the first Edward VI. So what of young Edward? Well, still in the tower, still receiving little or no education, still seeing nothing of the outside world, seeing limited people within the tower... I doubt he has any idea at all that this has been going on in his name. And the years rolled by for young Edward, and we don't hear so very much about him until his paths cross with a certain Perkin Warbeck.
actually am hoping that he didn't know what was going on. Because if he did, I couldn't imagine the terror he would feel. Because mm. this is being done in his name, so either Henry could take him out because of it, yeah. or what would happen when the army showed up and now there were two earls of Warwick. Deep trouble no matter which way that goes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it is a very sad story. It really is. <laughs> the poor little thing. Yeah. At this point, young Edwards and Perkin Warbeck's stories join. And so I'll talk in detail about this period in this episode, because whichever one of us does Warbeck, there'll be more than enough to fill an episode without going too deeply into this part. Whereas poor young Edward doesn't have much of a life to talk about up to this point. So this is 1498, and young Edward is 23. Oh, that does jump a bit. <laughs> well, what's there to say? <laughs> it's day in, day out. Oh, man. He's been in the Tower for 13 years of his young life. It'd be nice to think that the guards have got to know him over those years and have, have been kind to him. And even the most so. hardened jailer must have felt sorry for the lad. I mean, he committed no crime. Perkin Warbeck had tried to overthrow Henry VII, and he was under very luxurious house arrest in Henry VII's own house, free to roam as he pleased, as long as he didn't leave the premises. Which makes me think that Henry would have at least taken some care with Edward, I'd hope. Um, I suppose it makes you think that Henry obviously didn't believe that Perkin Warbeck was who he said he was, because if he did think that, he would be in the same situation as young Edward. Yes, or worse. Mm. Well, read on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, Henry had paid for Perkin Warbeck's clothes, even went on progress with the king. Um, Young Edward, on the other hand, had never attempted anything against Henry, or indeed anybody, and yet he'd spent over half his life in the most notorious prison in the country. And he had been born to misery, as Polydore Virgil said, and he was the historian that was meant to be showing Henry in the best of all possible lights. Yet um, this showed that Henry did not see Warbeck as genuine. However, around midnight, on the 9th of June, 1498, Perkin Warbeck suddenly jumped out of a window and ran away. I don't know why. (laughs) Maybe we'll find out in his episode. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, I wondered if he was constantly mocked and taunted by everyone at the court and you just had enough. But and I don't know because I've, I've deliberately not read any more about him than I had to, just in case I don't get to do him next time round. But he was recaptured and after a spell in the stocks, he was taken to the tower. So no cosy house arrest for him this time. No. Mm. A plot had been hatched in February 1498, so before Warbeck arrived at the tower, by Thomas Astwood. Now, he had been spared execution for his part in a previous plot, which had led to the execution of William Stanley. More of that in his episode. This episode sounds like a plug for all our other episodes. (laughs) But that's the way everything is at this time. Everybody knows everybody and is involved in everybody else's business. Mm. Well, Astwood may not have lost his head, but he had lost all his money. He was bankrupted by the cost of his pardon and was, was anything but reconciled to the Tudor dynasty. He met up with several people, including a gentleman's servant of Warwick's. You know, he's a prisoner, but he still has servants. Yes, um, but that was the way it was in the tower. If oh, you were yeah. a prisoner in the tower, you paid for your food, your meals, your you were allowed servants. But from what I read, the servants were also criminals. So they weren't, they were pulled oh, from right. other prisons. They weren't your servants because then they could be loyal to you and, and pass you yeah. things. But you could pay and the jailer would pick who would be your attendees? 
but you still had yeah. to pay for them. You even had to pay for your firewood. You paid for everything when you were in prison at this time. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Anyway, this, this servant was called Robert Claymond. One of the conspirators told the others that he'd had a dream where an, a bear stood in the streets rattling its chains. And the emblem of the Warwicks was a bear and a ragged staff. So this was obviously an omen. Mm -hmm. But now was the time to spring young Edward from the tower. Clayman told young Edward that the Warwick battle cry of our Warwick would soon be shouted through the streets. And he also gave him two pairs of gloves and a pot of spice to cheer him up. So a pot nice. of spice? A pot of spice, yes. Do we know if type. that's actually spice or if it's a drink or food? Or... Well, I got the impression, well, maybe it's... Maybe food in the food in the thing is boring, so they gave him spice to perk his food up. I don't know. I don't know. Astwood bided his time until July, when he was able to meet with young Edward for the first time, and he told him that he was someone who loves you well. To which, which young Edward replied, "Now I have a special friend." Oh my! Mm, I can hear the voice of Ralph Wiggum from the from the Simpsons. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> With Warbeck's escape and recapture, ten tensions were high, so Astwood waited for another year, which must have been agony for young Edward, if indeed he knew what was going on at the time, which is debatable. Right, the plan was, and you need to concentrate here, it's okay. a bit complicated, okay? The plan was to deprive the king of his royal power and set up Edward, Earl of Warwick, as king and destroy the king, his lords, and his great men. Which, as plans go, doesn't seem very detailed. No! That's like, <laughs> step one, win. Yes. It reminded <laughs> me of the Monty Python sketch about how to play the flute. You know, you blow in one end and move your fingers up and down the other side. <laughs> yes. On the 2nd of June, 1499, Astwood was seeking a couple of good fellows of gentle condition to aid him in a project, the nature of which he was not prepared to divulge at that juncture. So get involved, but I'm not going to tell you into what. Yes, yes. Astwood, via a source close to the king, learnt the itinerary of the king's summer progress. And he, he, the king was preparing a trip along the south coast, so Astwood decided to wait until the king reached the Isle of Wight, where it would take the maximum amount of time for news to reach him. Obviously, you got to cross the water. Sorry, that seems like it would be a big deal, the fact that he found out the Winter Progress, but Henry published his roots for the Winter Progress, so he didn't do some sort of espionage, he just read the proclamation. <laughs> no, no, it's sources close to the king <laughs> who read the proclamation. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that does, that does sound a bit more cloak and dagger than probably it was, <laughs> Anyway, where diddly dum diddly dum. Um, yeah, he wanted to make sure that if they released young Edward and Warbeck from prison, there would be the greatest length of time to make their getaway before the king would spring into action and order the troops out. So at this point, we're all rooting for Astwood. I mean, just getting the boy out of the place, really, isn't it? I mean, don't bother with all that making him king rubbish. Mm -hmm. Just take him somewhere nice where people are kind and where he can enjoy the birds and the trees and the sun. Yeah. And have an odd pint because he's old enough now. But... Uh, Mm. There's a sense of foreboding over this, really, isn't there? <laughs> Especially when you say, uh... <laughs> <laughs> But apparently there were diverse servants. I love the word diverse. Diverse servants working inside the tower who were prepared to help. So it's nice to think that they would have just felt sorry for the lad. I mean, even if they were criminals from other prisons. 
Yeah. It doesn't stop them feeling sorry for them, does it? No. One of the conspiracies... I can't say that word. One of the conspirators had been in touch with Warbeck and had cut off the aglets of his hood. The aglets are the, you know, when, uh, on your shoelaces, it's the little bit of plastic or metal oh, at yes. the end, so it goes through the hole properly. And he cut off the aglets of his hood. This is proper cloak and dagger. Um, this became a sort of token to show Warbeck that you were in with a conspiracy, so you could be trusted. You, t- you took him your aglets from your, your cloak. Because okay. presumably you had to tie it up. I'm doing, I'm doing, the, doing the actions here. To <laughs> so everybody can see you attempting to tie with nothing. <laughs> well, I suppose it's as good as token as any. It's quite easy to hide, isn't it? So, and, and if you've got aglets, people, people aren't going to say, what are you doing with those? You just say, yeah. well, they're part of my cloak. Yeah. So, yeah, it seemed quite sensible. The plan, which had become a bit a tad more involved now, was to procure a ship and fill it with woolen cloth, presumably as a pretext for crossing the channel. Okay. Astwood was happy to release Warbeck as well because he was sure that he was the son of Edward IV. <laughs> which means that young Edward wouldn't, wouldn't be king anyway. He'd only be second in line and, or third if the younger son of Edward IV, Richard, would, was to turn up. Right. Warbeck's cell was immediately below young Edward's, which implies that Edward was in something, something akin to a cell rather than palatial. Possibly. A cell at that time was considered an apartment. So oh, right. they named a lot of things cell, like an anchorite cell could often mm. be an entire home with multiple rooms. It was still considered her cell. So Oh, right, because when you talked about anchorite cell the other time, I just assumed it would be a almost like room. a sort of cave with a yeah. door bolt. Oh, right. No, no, cells were quite big. It, it wasn't for quite a while that they come to mean a single room or single area, and then they, they come down to being in a prison cell. Mm. But... At this time, it was still could be multiple rooms. Well, I happen to know that Warbeck was in shackles, so... Then, yeah. Might be more celly than, than not. But his cell was immediately below young Edward's, and Edward and Doc on the floor to keep Warbeck's spirits up, because Warbeck was suffering from depression at this point, which is which is understandable. I mean, he'd swapped house arrest for imprisonment in the tower. I mean, he must have been kicking himself, mustn't he? <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Shouldn't have jumped out that window. A Flemish clerk now makes a brief appearance here and brings a letter to Warbeck. Now, it isn't known what the letter contained or who it was from. And based purely on the clerk's nationality, it's been speculated that Margaret of Burgundy might be sticking her order in the game. Oh, yes. (laughs) I wouldn't doubt that a bit. it's quite a long shot just on this information. True. It involves a lot of assumptions. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that seems quite possible. Claimant, that's the um, servant, was able to act as a go-between since he was young Edward's servant and also had access to Warbeck. Warbeck suggested that the conspirators should light fires around the tower using the gunpowder that was stored there, which is more than just fires, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Explosions. And while the guards were busy putting them, them out, Warbeck, young Edward and the conspirators... I can't say this word. Conspirators. <laughs> it was like me with negotiations the other day. <laughs> would slaughter the constable's men, raid the treasury and scarper to the coast. Clayman passed this message on to, and this plan on to young Edward, but he didn't seem to understand why they were doing this. Clayman had to tell him several times that they were plotting his escape. And this doesn't bode well for young Edward's points in Amphiboly, since he couldn't understand the intrigue when it was spelled out to him in words of one syllable. <laughs> in multiple times. <laughs> and maybe he was just not keen on the slaughter of the constable's men part of it. I don't know. Maybe he had no problem with it. Maybe. I, I read in the John de la Pole episode, but I didn't want to bring it up at that time because I knew you were doing or 
we would be doing Edward later. But there is some speculation that he may have been developmentally delayed. He was he was quite weak. In um, it's like I read that as well. But it's largely based on the comment of a chronicler called Edward Hall, who said that he had been in prison for so long, out of all company of men and sight of beasts, in so much that he could not discern a goose from a capon. But I think the opposite part of that is he'd been in prison for so long and from such a young age. And it may have been literal. I mean, if you've never seen a goose or a capon, how are you meant to tell them apart? I don't know what a capon yeah. is. I think it's a sort of chicken, but I went to look it up. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've got chickens, but I've never called them capon. I thought capon was when you eat them, but I, well, I suppose it could be. Goose or a capon on a table. I don't know. I don't know. But no. if you put a goose or a turkey on the table, I'm not sure I would know that it was a goose or a turkey if they were relatively mm. the same size. I don't know. And, the, and nobody's saying that you're simple-minded or anything because I hope of not that. somebody out there probably is <laughs> but that seems to be mainly what it's based on but yeah i mean you do get this i mean when he says now i've got a special friend it does it does it come across that way yeah it does but then it might seem entirely different in a in tudor tudor speak true special special may have different meanings Young Edward was in danger at this point, but it's unlikely that Astwood or Claimant would have known the reason for this. It seems that the Spanish monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella were very reluctant to send their daughter Catherine to England unless they could be absolutely certain that she'd be safe. Right. In other words, they didn't want to send her to a country that was rife with plots and whose monarchy, the monarchy they were buying into by marrying Catherine off to Prince Arthur, could be toppled at any time. And you can see their point. I mean, if they married Catherine to Arthur... And then Henry VII lost the throne. They've thrown away a perfectly good political link for the Spanish royal family, haven't they? Yeah. They had seven children, five of whom made it to adulthood. I mean, they couldn't really afford to use them all up on useless marriage contracts. No. With people who didn't stay on the throne. And this, this is having a knock-on effect to, to young Edward. So since it's all hotting up for Edward, although obviously he's none the wiser about it, he needs to get out of the tower... But if the plan fails, Henry will have the excuse he needs to get rid of an imped impediment to a useful marriage. Two, in fact, because he's got Perkin Warbeck as well. Yes. So, Didn't Catherine yeah. later lament yeah. that her marriage was negotiated in blood? She put it down to yeah, all her problems. She put down to this. But the breakout might be successful. So let's see, rather than looking on the gloomy side. <laughs> At this point, something something a bit odd happens. Although the conspirators had all pledged to be true and secret to their fellowship, Claymond seems to have lost his nerve suddenly. He told young Edward that the king knew of their plans and that he suspected that Warbeck was the one who'd grasped. And I'm not sure what would have been in it for Warbeck, except that maybe he's trying to cover, curry favour with Henry to get his punishment put back to house arrest. But there's no paperwork to corroborate this theory, but then there wouldn't be, would there? No... So Claymont ran, then ran off to seek sanctuary in Colchester, although on the way he was persuaded by a fellow conspirator to go to Westminster and await events there. But nobody knows what made Claymont suddenly break ranks, and later he was back at his secret meeting of the conspirators, so presumably whatever had spooked him had come to nothing. However, Claymont was right to be suspicious. The king did know about the plot and they were just waiting until the opposite time to pounce. Oh, you know what? With how devious and suspicious and intriguing Henry was, 
I wouldn't put it past him to have created <laughs> this whole that thing. Is, that is a theory that's been made before, yes. Um, yes, we'll come to that. I <laughs> know <laughs> there's a bit of an anticlimax. There's very little is known about the arrests. The conspirators were just rounded up, and that's pretty much all we know. And young Edward and Warbeck were indicted too. Did, did they even get out? Did they manage to get out of the tower before they were arrested? Not as far as I know. I think it's a conspiracy conspiracy is enough isn't it yeah i suppose yeah. so but oh the poor kid i mean you didn't even get to get out <laughs> one last time i don't think so i mean if they did there's nothing i mean that's the trouble with history rather than literature i mean it all builds up to this big finale and then with lack of information it just fizzles, it fizzles out, out. So. <laughs> oh i just keep th- i'm sorry i just keep thinking of the poor guy we're finally gonna get out of the tower yeah. and i didn't even get to go over the threshold no didn't oh. even get to kill one of the constable's men <laughs> <laughs> oh, and what young lad doesn't breathe he doesn't, actually he's not a young lad anymore is he? he's getting no. on a bit um, but yeah as you said it, it has been suggested that Claymond was a royal stooge and that the whole plot had been fabricated by Henry VII to give himself an ex- excuse to get rid of young Edward and Warbeck Ooh, and that's, maybe why... that's why Claymond absconded maybe he looked into young Edward's naive and trusty eyes and just thought I can't do this that's what I was going to say he's <laughs> yes. such a sweet but then was coerced boy. to go back yes Mm. I can't do this to this poor kid. He trusts me. I have a special friend. A special friend. On 12th of November, 1499, the King's Council assembled at Westminster for the trial. All the bishops were there, as well as the Duke of Buckingham, the Earls of Northumberland, Oxford, Surrey, Essex and Ormond. Jasper Tudor was dead by this point, in case you were wondering if Henry didn't trust him not to abseil up the side of the building and let himself in via the ventilation shaft. <laughs> I love how we ended up with such differing views on him. As you're saying that, I'm picturing Mr. Bean attempting to climb the rope and just keep sliding down. <laughs> I think we're going to get problems with this, this interpretation of Jasper. <laughs> Yeah, I can definitely feel an egg of the peaceable coming. <laughs> <laughs> the proceedings were led by Chief Justice Fineur. I imagine it's what it's pronounced. He believed that it was shown by the confession of the said Edward and other that they indeed intended to have deposed and destroyed the king's person and his blood. It was decided that Edward intended to have been king, although willing to step aside for Warbeck if the latter had been King Edward's son. This is Fino speaking. Okay. He concluded, they have done treason and deserve death. Every councillor agreed. Warbeck had flown too close to the sun, but it's hard to see what young Edward had done to, to deserve this. Oh. Several other the conspirators were also condemned to a traitor's death. When it came to young Edward's trial, John de Vere, 13th Earl of Oxford, was appointed chief steward so that steward, so that he could preside over the trial, so that Edward could have his case heard by his jury of peers, his, his peers. The outcome was probably decided in advance because they all knew that his death was required politically. And for everyone there in the court, young Edward's death was secure, their own hold on power as well as the king's. Um, and it's never a bad thing to give the king what he wants, really, is it? I suppose not, although it sure mm. seems like it. Yes. On the 21st of November, the charges were read out to young Edward that he had treasonously colluded with a conspiracy to flee the tower with the king's great rebel Warbeck, 
intending thereafter to seize the throne. So that implies it is just the conspiracy. They never made it over the wall. No, it doesn't sound no. like it. There's no escape in there. No. Oh. Young Edward freely confessed to his guilt and pleaded for mercy. Think, did, did he understand the charges? I mean, did he think that if he confessed, it would all just go away? He didn't was he intimidated by the proceedings? I mean, he'd been brought up in pretty much seclusion in the tower and suddenly he's brought out into people baying for his blood. Oh, and now I'm picturing somebody whispering behind him, this is what you say. Yes. Ooh. Ooh. <sighs> yeah, I mean, if he was told he, if he pleaded guilty, the king would just say, oh, no hard feelings and leave it at that. I don't uh, He put up no resistance or he didn't try and explain his actions. And maybe because the actions were not his, but those around him mm-hmm. he didn't quite grasp what uh, the implications would be well you already said that they had to explain it to him several times so i honestly think somebody was now holding his hand with what to say because he mm. couldn't if he couldn't comprehend the conspiracy how could he comprehend the trial yeah and that might not be what they called simple-mindedness it might just be complete lack of any education or experience mm. yes He's just been Naive- in naivety yeah yeah the Earl of Oxford pronounced judgment that the said Earl of Warwick should be taken to the Tower of London to the gallows at Tyburn and then hanged, cut down, disemboweled and quartered in the usual manner. Oh, lovely. On the 28th of November, 1499, the 24-year-old Edward was brought out of the Tower. In deference to his rank, he was spared the humiliating ah, journey to Tyburn. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> like, but they don't usually do that to people of rank at this time. Or not, no. the, not the full... Not the full Monty. Yeah. But instead taken to nearby Tower Hill, and it was here in the shadow of the tower that had been his home for most of his life that young Edward was beheaded. It was partly the memory of young Edward's grandfather, Warwick the Kingmaker, that did for Edward, since Ferdinand of Aragon had insisted that anyone of the Warwick line should be got rid of if civil war were to be avoided, and Henry VII really wanted this alliance with Spain. Polydor Virgil said that the entire population mourned the death of the handsome youth, Mm. an unhappy boy who had been committed to prison not for any fault of his own, but because of his family's offences. This is Polydor Virgil, you know, the the, the the king's king's historian. Yeah, and Henry was his patron. Mm. Do we know if he wrote this during the time of Henry, or was this written afterwards? But even then, he would still be trying to curry favour with Henry VIII. Yeah. Virgil placed the blame for the Earl's death on Warbeck. Now, we are, this is get out clause. So mm. that Warbeck had planned the escape, whereas Edward had just gone along with it. Henry had no choice. No. Well, here we go. Another <laughs> quote from the ever sympathetic Henry the, Henry the Seventh Society website. Okay. And I quote Of course, I do not condone the manner in which Edward Plantagenet met his death. His life was spanned 24 short years, but he was not a child. Nor was his execution a flight of fancy. It was a brutal necessity to secure the stability of a fledgling dynasty that was trying with all its might to prevent much greater bloodshed further down the line. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. <laughs> That's their argument. Well, and, and was it or were they trying to appease a foreign power in order to gain prestigious links? I mean, yes, <sighs> I'm sure he I'm sure there's a point in there, but it's a slightly callous one. Yes, like putting yeah, it. and that he's no longer a boy makes it better. It, no. it seems like that was pointed out. He's not a child. Mm. He didn't kill a yes. child. Don't but... imagine a child being beheaded. He's a fully grown 24-year-old man. Uh, 
Mm, well, Edward's know. execution seems to me a huge indictment of Henry's reign. I know it sounds like I'm always thoroughly anti-Henry because I keep saying this or that as a huge indictment on Henry's reign. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I think he did many things to classify him as a good king, but this really, really isn't one of them. No. Mm. Young Edward, let's look on the bright side. Young Edward's head was not spiked, which suggested that Henry VII was not happy that he'd been forced into the position of having to take this young man's life. Is that it, or is it that he also has to face his wife, who is the aunt of Edward? Possibly. Possibly, possibly. There is something a bit later that implies he wasn't happy with this arrangement. Um, Edward's body was taken to Bissom Abbey for burial. I lived next door to Bissom Abbey. I had no idea. It has so much history in it. Um, Henry paid for the burial, which was near his grandfather, the kingmaker. Does the abbey still exist? Yeah, it does. So it's, um, I would assume he's go. still there? Yes, although uh, it's now a sports centre. Oh. <laughs> hmm. the, ab- the, the abbey's still there. The sports centre's just off to one side. But yeah. I wonder if he's still in there. You should go find out. Well, I don't live near it now. It's, it's in uh, Berkshire. Oh. As a child, I lived, near, lived in Bissom. That's, uh, that's why I know it's pronounced Bissom and not Bisham. Ah, Okay. Um, Thomas Astwood, having been reprieved once before, was not so lucky this time. He was hanged, drawn and quartered. Um, I'm not sure what happened to young Edward's servant, Robert Claymont. I couldn't find out any details about whether he was executed or not, which which would indicate his involvement in the plot one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, was, was he really trying to spring Edward from the tower or had he been stringing Edward and Warbeck along right from the start? I mean, if we knew if he was executed, we'd know one way or the other. But... Yes, we would. Anyway, after 14 years on the throne, Henry could now say that he'd won and his dynasty was safe. whoop de woo <laughs> On the 20th of January, 15,000, 1500, just two months after the execution of Warbeck and young Edward, the treaty between Henry VII and Ferdinand and Isabella was ratified and Catherine started to make her journey towards England. Oh my goodness, and, she was yeah, right. As, yeah, as you say... Um, following the death of Prince Arthur, Catherine questioned whether their marriage might have been cursed because it was brought by the blood of young Edward. And in March 1499, the Spanish ambassador wrote to Ferdinand and Isabella. So that's sort of in the, in the middle of this conspiracy thing. The ambassador wrote, Henry has aged so much during the last two weeks that he seems 20 years older. So we can't say that Henry took this lightly. Cardinal Pole suggested that ordering Edward's execution had been the one deed which the king so greatly repented on his deathbed. And, you know, there should have been several others, but apparently that was the one. (laughs) Anyway, that is the story of young Edward's sad life and death. Or is it?
Are we doing Amphiboly now? No, no, we're oh. on part two. Okay. No, you ain't seen nothing yet. Oh. Although Edward IV was young Edward's godfather, he did not attend his baptism and may never have set eyes on him. The Marquis of Dorset, who took charge of Edward in 1477, may never have seen him before. Really? Rich III then looked after him, but he had not seen him since he was a baby. Robert Willoughby, who picked young Edward up from Sheriff Hutton, and indeed Henry VII himself, had never seen him, because why would they have? So no one who took charge of him after his father's death knew what young Edward looked like. Now, to go back to the highly fictionalised playlet at the start of the episode, the Burgundian chronicler Jean de Molinet wrote that young Edward was nurtured among the fruitful and lordly shrubs of Ireland, which implied that he spent some time there, if not his whole early childhood. You know, it's not just a holiday. Another Burgundian source says that young Edward was in the hometown of Margaret of Burgundy in 1486, but how can that be possible? Henry VII came to the throne in 1485, and one of the first ticks on his to-do list was to put that boy in the tower. Yeah. yeah. I'll now read part of the Act of Attainder against George Duke of Clarence, young Edward's father. Okay, and I quote. And also, the same Duke, purposing to accomplish his said false and untrue intent, and to inquiet and trouble the king... Our said sovereign lord, his liege people, and this his royal, that's Edward IV, now of late willed and desired the abbot of Tewkesbury, that was young Edward's other godfather, Mr. John Tapton, a clerk, and John Harewell, esquire, to cause a strange child to have been brought into his castle of Warwick, and there to have put and kept in likeness of his son and heir. Really? And that they should have conveyed and sent his said son and heir to Ireland, or into Flanders, out of this land, whereby he might have gotten him assistance and favour against our said sovereign lord. So presumably here we're talking about Gerald Fitzgerald, the Earl of Kildare, mm-hmm. and or Margaret of Burgundy. Um, anyway, to continue. And for the execution of the same, sent one John Taylor, his servant, to have had deliverance of his said son and heir, for to have conveyed him to which Master John Tapton and Roger Harewell denied the deliverance of the said child, and so by God's grace his said false and untrue intent was let and undone. Unquote. So this spells out George's intention, obviously beginning to feel the heat himself, and so wanting to get his son away from danger, to take his son to Ireland or Flanders and to replace him with another. Where they were to get this other one, I'm not sure. But the fact that it says that the intent was let and undone implies that the intention was there, but the but switch did not hurt. take place. But that they but know then of. They would say that, wouldn't they? Yes. I mean, you're not going to say, oh, yes, yeah, it's a fair cop. It worked. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you the address. Um, yeah. Hmm, so was he really <laughs> the Earl of Warwick? Precisely. We'll do an episode on Gerald Fitzgerald, and in it we'll see that he was a very keen supporter of Lambert Simnel, he was willing to take the sides with Henry VII against Perkin Warbeck. Now, why? What did he know about Lambert Simnel that made him so keen to push him forward? Did he know, for instance, that Simnel was telling the truth when he said that he was Edward Plantagenet, 17th Earl of Warwick? And did he know that because he'd been looking after the boy since the father had pushed him into his arms to keep him safe from harm? For to him, you know, Perkin Warbeck was an unknown quantity and unlikely to be the real, real deal. 
But then this priest couldn't have saved him from the tower. And that was the story for Lambert Sentinel. Well, they're all stories, it seems, yes. aren't they? Yes. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that some have speculated that Rich III may have made young Edward his heir on the eve of the Battle of Bosworth. This speculation stems from John de la Pole Jr.'s actions. If he knew of this, maybe it would explain why he so staunchly supported Lambert Simnel, who was claiming to be Edward Plantagenet. Because John de la Pole Jr. had a good claim to the throne himself, but he didn't push himself. However, this gets very confusing. Just whom did Rich III make his heir? The boy who was living in his wife's household who may have been a changeling, or the boy who was in Ireland who may have been taken there by his worried father? And how much, of the, how much did John de Napole know? Had he heard that young Edward was living in Ireland all this time, and that's why he defended with his life, as it happened, the seeming pretender. But then he went on progress with Rich III and the other boy who ended up in the tower. I mean, what was their relationship like? Did, did he know then? Wouldn't Richard have, if he had known, wouldn't Richard have known that his nephew was in Ireland under an assumed name and bring him back? I don't know how much contact there was with George and Richard at this point, because it would have been relatively quick with George thinking, oh, God, we need to sort this out. Yeah, and they weren't fond of each other. No, and he might have thought that Richard would side with Edward. Well, he did. <laughs> yes, well, precisely. So I think that might explain why Richard wasn't brought into the plot. So hmm. he would have, he might know nothing about it, although he would have obviously read The Attainder, I would have thought. Yeah. And might have had some suspicion. I don't know. We just don't. We don't know where Richard comes into it here, do we? No. Um, two further, further episodes, which seem strange, can now be explained if this hypothesis is true that George did take him out of the country. Why was George so convinced that his wife and baby son had been poisoned? I mean, had he heard something of a plot to get rid of him? We know that Edward the Fourth had had enough of his wayward brother, and had him execu executed soon after, or at least someone killed him in a vat of Malmsey. Mm -hmm. Did he feel that they were getting at him through his family, first his wife and then his baby son? And would young Edward be next if he didn't get him to safety? But if there were no children of Edward's age living at Warwick Castle, then a hunt would be made for the boy. But if George could point to a small boy happily playing in the nursery, you know, no one need be any the wiser that young Edward is way across the sea. Mm -hmm. I mean, these things are not unknown. When John Ninth Lord Clifford was killed by a Yorkist arrow the day before the Battle of Towton, his seven-year-old son and heir was spirited away on the instructions of Boy's mother and lived as a shepherd boy until Henry VII repealed the act of attainder against his father and suddenly the boy reappeared aged 31. So I mean, these things happen. Wow. Furthermore, if George had been so incensed about Anchorette Twinahoe poisoning his wife, why did it take him three months to do anything about him? You'd have thought he'd have stormed down to Froome in the, on the instant and grabbed the old woman. But he didn't. He waited for three months. And what was he doing in those three months? Was he, for instance, travelling to Ireland with his son, making sure that he was safe, or at least arranging for someone to do it for him, before George brought attention to himself by having Ankara executed? Hmm. Also, this does explain the most glaring hole in Lambert Simnel's claim to be Edward Plantagenet. There already was one. And he was alive and as well as could be expected in the Tower of London. But was he? <laughs> If Simnel was young Edward, then who's this boy in the tower? You know, some lad that George, Duke of Clarence, men had found and brought back to the castle. Well, if so, the story is, if anything, even sadder. I mean, it's bad enough that young Edward should be kept in the tower purely because of who he is. But what if he isn't who he is? Oh. <laughs> it's even worse. Yes, that is. 
I mean, what if he was a farm boy or the son of a servant in Warwick Castle? Or was he, for instance, the son of an organ maker in Oxford? And was his name Lambert Simnel? I mean, who knows? Oh, that's even sadder. Yeah, and obviously there's a lot of overlap between this episode and the one we'll be doing on Lambert Simnel. So I will leave the motives for those who supported Simnel until his episode. But evidently, if Simnel really is young Edward, those who supported Simnel were really supporting Edward, which makes a lot more sense particularly if they were not happy having Henry VII on the throne. But if he wasn't, then they must have had their own agenda, if he wasn't Edward. Yeah. Now, I have to say that I got much of the information for this story, apart from some speculations of my own, from a book called The Dublin King, The True Story of Edward, Earl of Warwick, Lambert Simnel and the, and the Princes in the Tower by John Ashdown Hill. And the title riled me a bit. I mean, what sort of historian refers to anything as the true story? <laughs> Hmm. Are you biased? (laughs) And also, I did think of highlighting every bit in the book which said it's possible that, it could be conjectured that, a possible interpretation. Then how is it true? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'd have highlighted most of the book. But having said that, this theory does explain some of the anomalies in the stories of both the Pretenders and young Edward. So I'm not dismissing it. And obviously, I've been doing precisely the same thing in the second half of of this episode, so... Yes, but there are so many questions that just don't... We don't know enough to make sense of it. Mm. Luckily, we're not here to solve the mystery of young Edward and Lambert Simnel. We just have to rate Edwards according to our categories. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. And fibbly. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I feel I feel he ought to have minus points because he's. I mean, when all intriguing is explained to him, it has to be repeated again and again and again, and it's questionable that he ever really got it. And he didn't even defend himself. Zero, a resounding zero. I mean, you could say it's what killed him if his execution hadn't been predetermined. But yeah, nothing. No, I don't think we'll come across a more nothing. Uh, nothing. No. Antiperistasis. I mean, this is tricky. If the boy in the tower is Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, then he's fallen a hell of a way from Earl to prisoner. If he's a farmhand or servant boy, I suppose he's fallen less far. It's still a He's still a prisoner. He's still a prisoner. I mean, either way, there's been some change, but... Yes, but he's been (laughs) executed. The change is that ultimately he was executed. I think that's a zero again. He didn't go up at all. There wasn't there wasn't even a, a skip. He went down. He went down, but not up. Well, it's rise and fall. Yes. But even his fall wasn't a huge fall. I mean, yes, he's the Earl of Warwick, but as... Yeah, a lot of people was... who were executed were Earl of something, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, and he was a child when he was put in prison. He never got out of prison that we can figure out. Mm. And then he was executed without even stepping over the threshold. Yes. And that's a zero. It's just dead straight across. But I left that blank because I usually I put in the, the number I've thought of. But I've, I thought, I'll come back to that one. I thought, but I noticed I never actually did. I didn't come back to it because it just seemed... I'm giving zero because he was in prison as a kid. He never got out. So there was, technically, by the time he could action his own life, it was still a zero. He didn't go up. He didn't go down. I'm going to go for a two because he was executed. And okay. and that's, I mean, that's a fall if ever there was one. Okay. That's a two for antiparastasis. Yes, always doing well. Martyrdom. 
Did he have any beliefs? I don't know. He suffered, but he didn't choose to suffer. No. I mean, which would be the definition of martyrdom, or at least a willingness to suffer. I mean, he suffered for a cause that, you know, whether he is the real Edward or not, was not his cause because he was too young to make anything of it. Yeah. Um, in his youth, he appears to have been shunted from pillar to post, but that's not because people got fed up with him or anything. I mean, they had good reasons of their own. Dorset had to had the reason of fear for his own life, and he had to leave England. Yeah. Which the third died. Um, yeah. We've no reason to think that good provision wasn't arranged for the boy. They may have made sure that he was safe. It could could be before they. You know, they didn't dump him on Paddington Station with a sign round his neck saying, please look after this Earl, did they? I mean, they, he's he's just he's just there, isn't he? I mean, there's yes. no martyrdom, there's no... There's, yeah. It can't have been easy. I'm going to have to go with the zero again. I mean, I mean, you can't deny he suffered. Yes, but... but martyrdom's not about suffering per se. No, well, it's about your convictions, well. and we don't even yeah. know. Zero? Mm, zero, yeah. Okay. B team. Well, do you have anything to not, give up? Not much here. I mean, he was the male end of the line. If you're going directly, and obviously there was his sister Margaret, who mm-hmm. we'll cover in the next season. But he had no what children to be What happened to, to thought... his earldom? Do we know? I don't know. I was just going to say he had no children to be a thorn in the side, like John de la Pole did. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened to it. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe somebody else will and let us know. Um, not many people have heard of him. I mean, there were the princes in the tower, and everyone remembers them, but everyone yeah, forgets but... that poor, poor Edward was languishing away there. I'm going to have to go for another zero. I'm actually going to give him a one because of the distress he caused Catherine of Aragon. So his his life did continue, in a way, in remembrance. Because we still hear about it in her history. Yeah. Well, Henry went to his death wishing that he hadn't had to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I'll stick with a zero then. I think okay. one's quite enough for co- to cover both of them, isn't it? Yes, that's a one for Bettine. Flaunt, a bleeding flaunt. Okay, so not a portrait. Yeah, it's just a sketch. It's a sketch drawing. Yeah, I mean, it's his picture on this Wikipedia page and seems to be the only one just showing him. It's not contemporary. And it's not in the style of the period. It was done in 1793 by Edward Harding. So oh, it's just well, spe- then it's, it's just... It's just speculation. But that's the one you see next to his name mm-hmm. at any time. What about the ones below it? Next one down is early 19th century by an unknown artist. Ah, and it looks like okay. illustrations from a children's history book, doesn't it? Sort of cartoony yes, figures of several characters. Um, young Edward's on the left in, in full armour, interestingly. And they all have their emblems. Richard III and his son both have a boar curled up on their, f- their feet because the boar represented bravery yes. and fighting to the death. So, yeah, Richard's emblem was set famously a boar because there was that rhyme, wasn't there, but written by William Collingbourne. The cat, the rat, and Lovell, our dog, doth rule all England under a hog. And the cat was Catsby or Catesby. Oh. The rat was Ratcliffe. Lovell was Francis Lovell. And the hog was Richard III. So. Oh, I hadn't heard that before. Mm. Then there's Margaret, Countess yes. of Salisbury, who's uh, Edward's sister, um, and Queen Anne, Anne Neville, mm-hmm. um, Warwick Kingmaker's daughter, and then there's young Edward himself. And they all have the Warwick bear at their feet, mm-hmm. the bear representing strength, cunning, ferocity, and the protection of the, their one's family. And Edward and Margaret also have the black bull of the Duke of Clarence as well. 
Um, I was ready to dismiss this picture because it was, obviously it's drawn far too late. But luckily, in Thomas Penn's book, The Brothers yes. York, I came across the Roos or Rouse Roll. How do you pronounce it? Right, I'll go with Rouse Roll, okay. which is an illustrated armorial roll chronicle by the historian John Rouse, who died in 1492. So bang on oh, our yeah. timeline. And here are the sketches that look like they were cartoons. Yeah, it may have been commissioned by Anne Neville. And it commemorates the deeds of the Earl of, Earls of Warwick. And if you peer closely, it's pretty hard to see. But yeah, there he is, young Edward. There he is. Yeah, on the left. Yeah, so the 19th century sketch is taken from the Rouse Rolls. Okay. Um, however, although it's authentically you know, the right era, how much can we honestly say that is a, is a depiction of young Edward? I mean, he is in armour. I mean, did he ever get to wear armour? Oh, I doubt it. Yeah. Armour was expensive. <laughs> I was thinking before he went in, into the tower, but I mean, he was, it seems unlikely. Yeah, because if, if it were commissioned by Anne, then we must be talking before March 1485 when she died. So young Edward was 10. And does this picture, does the picture look like a 10 year old boy? No, it doesn't. It looks more like an adult. But like we said with Henry VII, uh, the image with all of his children, they were all adults, even though several of them had died in infancy. Oh, that's that was true. just something yes, that the that, did. They? Yes. Yeah. But it's obviously not him, is it? I mean, it's, no. <laughs> it's, not gonna... a, it's not a likeness. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to give a zero. We don't have the contemporary image. No, well, I was going to go for a bit more than that because we it is contemporary. Yes. And it is commissioned, commissioned by the boy's aunt, possibly. Oh, good point. But it's not very accurate. But, I mean, it is there. So um, I'll give a one then. Okay, I was going to go for th a three because it's a contemporary picture. It's not. It might not be him, but it's it's how she wanted him to be portrayed. Portrayed, right? Yeah. Mm, yeah, Even I'll bring though... it up to a two. As long as we think that this actually is the Earl of Warwick, and the Earl of Warwick isn't in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's there's there's the rub. Right, anyway, it is now time to wring out your hanky and ask the question... Are they too delicious, or what? <sighs> I say no. 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 I don't feel quite as bad about this one as I did about Jasper. I feel Jasper. more bad about this did one. Did you? Well, he didn't get anything. He didn't do anything in his entire life. The poor guy. But Jasper busted his gut fighting for his cause, and you can bet he'd have expected to be chewed delicious, but I don't think young Edward would have expected him. He'd, just, he'd have just wanted a special friend. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's a total score for him of 5.5. Ah. <laughs> so 5.5 means, sorry, young Edward, you are not, not too delicious. Not too delicious, no. Put, put the booing in there. I feel awful oh. <laughs> booing him. <laughs> Maybe we should have some people crying and weeping instead. <laughs> Give two options. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> oh man. Right, next one then. Yes. Well, hopefully the next one will be a bit jollier. Let's pull your next one. Mm. What have you got in here? Okay. Ooh, this is fun. It's about nerving this now, isn't it? It is. 
John Cabot, Explorer and Navigator. Oh, right. That's a bit off, uh, out on a limb, isn't it? Yeah. Right, okay. Excellent. This will be interesting. We'll be discussing the new world, possibly. Yeah, because it's got all quite um, claustrophobic with all the people being well, not known to each other. But yes, no, that'd be good. Now I shall look forward to that. Yeah. That is the end of our episode on Edward Plantagenet, the Earl of Warwick. Join us next time for Arthur, Prince of Wales. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on In the meantime, farewell, gentle mistress, farewell. As much to you at home, and so, farewell. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>